is happening to the surface of the planet Earth and to the living systems here in the Central Valley of California. I am Pegasus, your host for Peril and Promise, KCBP's half-hour weekly show regarding environmental injustice and human recovery from health hazards in California. In every episode of Peril and Promise, you'll hear about important environmental issues which are intertwined with our physical and mental health. Everyone in the Central Valley of California is impacted by the stories you'll hear in Peril and Promise. We have a couple of former Sacramento residents who now live in the high desert of Paiute and Shoshone territory on the other side of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Meng Lai and Laura Marie Victor Taylor talk about radical mental health, the environment, and military violence beyond our borders. First of all, I want to give full disclosure that I have known Ming and Laura Marie for over a decade. They lived in Sacramento at a different time than I lived in Sacramento, and Ming and I have known each other a little bit longer. I'm wondering if you can tell me about your sense of environmental degradation and how that relates to the human spirit and to mental health. That sounds like an important topic, and I'm happy to talk about it with you. I'm happy to talk about it, too, with you, and I think Laura Marie should go first. Uh, Laura Marie, (laughs) as you're about to go first, Laura Marie, give our audience an introduction of who you are and what your expertise is in this field, what your experience is. Okay. So I'm Laura Marie, and I helped form the Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective in May of 2017, and I was diagnosed uh, a severe chronic mental illness 13 years ago and spent 11 years sedated on a bipolar cocktail of three different heads. And I do a lot of work trying to help people who have mental health challenges not fall through the cracks. I also make a radical mental health collective zine called Functionally Ill for around 13 years also. And, uh, I I really love crazy people such as myself and interacting with crazy people and loving crazy crazy people and helping us uh, survive and thrive and connect with each other to find community. Thank you. Um, and the the zine functionally ill is that similar to your blog or is is your blog something you wanted to share with people? So it's not specifically radical mental health. No. Got it. Okay. And um, functionally ill is, uh, in zine culture, it's usually just paper-based rather than uh, also electronically available. Is that true? Yes. Sometimes zines are digitized and can be available online, uh, you know, as a PDF or whatever. But I prefer not to digitize my zines, so they are only available uh, in paper and ink and thread at this time. I think that both of us came into adulthood around the turn of the century or before that. So we both remember the age before the internet and the digitization of stuff. I love the idea of being able to being able to hand somebody the paper copy or finding it at a zine library or something like that. There's a, I don't know what you call it, more of a connection. It's something that's more familiar mm-hmm. based on the culture that I was raised in in the 20th century. Have you ever experienced uh, in your own life, your own body, your own mind, any uh, linkage between environmental degradation or pollution or the consciousness about such things? Yes. I think a lot about uh, about what's happening to our environment and to Mother Earth. Um, in reference to mental health, because in my 
experience interacting with mental health professionals. Um, interacting with a doctor who wants to diagnose me so he can prescribe a medication or multiple medications. So I feel like that is definitely his whole deal and his whole goal is to see all of my difficulties as a pathology that can be classified in a scientific or pseudoscientific way. And then so he could prescribe the medication solve my problem, which is very out of touch with what I actually experienced because, you know, the first time I was put on a bipolar cocktail, I wasn't really asked, like, what's going on in your life? How can we help you be happy, you know, in ways other than this? It was just uh, seeing everything in terms of the DSM, whatever. So so that would be the first path. The second path would be, like, a regular kind of therapist talk to me about my life and my choices, specific problems. Uh, but in my experience, the therapist is not uh, helping me, you know, create a revolution or look at systems very much or try to help me destroy capitalism. The therapist is trying to help me learn how to cope while being harmed and abused and used or, or whatever my life situation is. They're not uh, helping me change the world. They're helping me moderate my symptoms to be more functional within the you know, the paradigm that that's like the regular paradigm. When, when I look at what's happening in the environment, they don't want to help me, you know, change it or fix it or like do something drastic to cause a new way of living. They want to help me uh, like keep my head down, try to get a real job, try to buy a house and have kids and do like a normal thing. So I, I see, I see the Western medicine psychiatry stuff as trying to help me continue. Laura Marie, the the phone just dropped out. If you could repeat what you said. You see, the Western medicine are mostly based on uh, chemicals. Um, You got cut off around that point, did you? Uh, That I would prefer, you know, other ways of addressing mental health challenges that are more grounded in uh, the reality that I experience reality as, which would be, like, like as a physical animal, human who can interact with my environment and make choices to like interact in a happy way that's healthy and isn't destroying it. Got it. Thank you very much. Um, Ming, can you tell me about uh, your situation and what your um, experience is in this uh, arena of mental health and environmental um, uh, degradation? Well, it seems to me as a permaculturist that mental health and the environment are closely linked, very obvious to me, that when people are disconnected from their environment, they are less likely to be happy. We were just talking about this, how when people are like very paranoid, very suspicious. Uh-huh. It's usually more like it's a camera watching me, am I being recorded by this device sitting in my car that's like a little microphone or something like that, or, you know, really is it something like, is this dandelion like oh. listening in? or observing me or something like that. That's what I've heard about other people talking about. Usually I've heard other people talk about this. I had not experienced it myself personally, but just from observations as a registered nurse and stuff like that, it seems like that's a more common thread than other threads. Okay, so as a registered nurse, you've noticed mental health challenges along the lines of paranoia more than other lines or threads. 
I want to talk more about perhaps justified paranoia after this quick break. I'm Pegasus, talking on the phone with Ming and Laura Marie, and we'll be right back in a few seconds. KCBP's Peril and Promise. I'm your host, Pegasus, and today's guest speakers are Ming and Laura Marie, a couple of justice and peace activists formerly from California, currently in Nevada. We were talking about the phenomenon of paranoia as suffered by many folks with mental illness. Laura Marie? Oh, I was going to say, when we were talking about it yesterday, we were talking about how it's very easy, but I'm paranoid to be afraid of a camera in a waiting room or be afraid, what's this strange device, what's it doing to me? So a lot of technological fears. People got paranoid, um, you know, like hundreds of years ago before there were cameras. Like what did they like focus in on as what to be afraid of? Maybe it was religious. Like maybe they were afraid the devil was listening in or, or God or something like an angel or a demon. When, when now it's very, very common, I think, for people who get paranoid to focus in on technological or like government stuff, like either being afraid of being observed, you know, like spied on through technology or government, you know, the government is out to get me, that person's an agent kind of thing. I mean, that's, those, those are the ones that I mostly experience. So I had the further thought, though, since that time that maybe it might be like a bias towards finding it because it has happened, not because... We don't know. We're, we're not sure exactly how widespread um, paranoia was uh, hundreds of years ago, but we have more data in the last century as people have labeled things paranoia and have documented it. And then we also have data that government forces or, or Facebook or whoever is, is collecting data, and that could add to the, the tendency towards what we call paranoia. I mean, there's also the panopticon aspect of drones and things like that, too, that we as um, inter- interface peace organization kind of experiences from drone warfare and stuff like that. So we hear about it from other aspects, too. Yeah. Can you explain the definition of panopticon and what drone warfare is and, and how that relates to... It's three questions. <laughs> so what's a panopticon and, and what's drone warfare? And then I'll go to the third question. So in greater clarity, the reason Pegasus knows Laura Marie and myself is that we are also like collaborators in a nonviolent direct action interfaith peace organization that does protests against drones that fly over other countries and are armed. And so we hear about the panopticon, which is like the... Uh, observing of everything that a drone a predator or a reaper drone does and it's observe- observing and then taking action on or being directed to take action on say like some enemy combatant yes so that's what a panopticon is the constant surveillance and a constant reporting. right the usa conducts drone surveillance primarily on non-us citizens and then conducts drone attacks like that could lead to imminent death the threat of death Yes. Specifically, I, I know that uh, I've um, felt sorry for anybody that becomes president of the United States in the past uh, 15 years or so, because I'm aware that part of their job is to check on the list and, and say, yes, kill this person. Yes, kill this person. 
As commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and, and in this age of drone warfare, which are constantly flying, apparently, um, it's part of the job of the President of the United States to have blood on his or her hands, his so far. What else uh, can you say about that? just the basics of a seasonal affective disorder and then how that pertains to other aspects of the environment and how it affects our psyches as human animals or even if you have experience or knowledge of how it affects other animals? Laura, do you want to take this as a question? Uh, yeah, uh, I was thinking how the Radical Mental Health Collective started having a monthly gardening day. So uh, we meet during the daytime here where we live and have a garden because I think it's important to try to heal ourselves in ways that are languagey, but also ways that are less languagey, like more of a uh, moving our bodies and doing physical things in the world that uh, can be seen and touched and smelled and felt, all that. And it's important to me to uh, also see things that bear fruit, literally, because a lot of the work that I do is very inner. So when I when I um, can help people come together around uh, compost and, and watering plants and, and a dirt, it feels good. If different people heal in different ways, or you know, we have to heal in multiple ways. And so, I really like Garden Day, being outside and doing something different. Because I feel like a lot of people, you know, stay indoors a lot and are on their computer or their phone like all the time. And you know, just to just to connect with what's happening like in reality out here under the sky something humans have been doing a long time before the, the technological choices. So I've been thinking about that a lot, exactly answering the question about seasonal affective disorder. Um, but I was wondering if I could say another thing about the gardening thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also, I believe that when you guys were in Sacramento, you did some community gardening. Yeah. Uh, in Sacramento, we had a garden plot at the, was it the Fremont Community Yeah, garden? Fremont Community Garden. Yes. And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful there. You know, people had individual plots, but then there was common areas with common plants. So my favorite there was the Asian pear trees, which were framed in a special way so that they were kind of flat instead of more rounded so you could access the fruit really well. And the, the, when I, when I picked the Asian pear off the tree uh, and ate it, you know, like two seconds later, I bit into it. It was the most delicious thing I had ever tasted because it tasted like um, life. It like, tasted like I was eating life or like eating God. And it was very beautiful, uh, a very beautiful way to like take the sacred God life stuff inside of me. I loved it there. You know, the oregano was um, everywhere. It was like weeds and you know, everything. It was so much life. It was just like, like trying to spread everywhere, and it was it was gorgeous. It was so gorgeous. Wow. Well, and um, since that time, have you uh had oregano growing at other places? We are trying to uh, reestablish that same kind of garden at Bartlett, where the Nevada Desert Grants headquarters is, and we're being successful in having a tree collar that's quite tall. A couple of different uh, shoots of tree collards and other plants are growing and. 
So we're trying to recreate that same effect here in the Las Vegas desert. Here is the desert, very different from Sacramento. And we've been here almost five years, but I'm still learning that, like, the seasons. And, and then, you know, as things are changing, you know, I used to be able to feel like there would be a monsoon, like a dry summer and then a monsoon summer, and there would be winter rain. And then, you know, but now since the climate change, uh, everything is, you know, sort of different now. I'm trying to catch up with how maybe it was, and then I'm trying to learn now how it is now and how it's becoming. And and going back again into the past, um, when you guys were in Sacramento, Ming, you did uh, permaculture maybe even before Sacramento. When you, I'm not sure. Can you tell me about your your life with permaculture and how that overlapped with uh, the community garden? And but I'm also curious about uh, a definition of permaculture and what your history, Ming, is with that. So many years ago, before I actually even started gardening, kind of thing, I was not very good at growing plants. And I was living at a place that offered permaculture as a course. And so before I moved from that place, that intentional community in Oregon, I took a permaculture course from that organization and then started growing plants, started realizing the joy of growing plants that I was missing in my life that I didn't even know I was missing. And so when I went to Sacramento, I started um, in a community garden plot, just started planting some stuff. and. The previous tenant had not taken out their um, uh, lavender and some other plants. And so I just kind of grew around those plants and made like a herb spiral in the middle and given some hogoculture in the back to make, make the ground more soggy and soft so that we could grow things that had deeper roots. And from that, then um, it kind of grew into a much more permaculturist garden because it takes like a year or more to do observation, which is one of the first steps you should do in a permaculture concept is that you would like to like observe first what's going on instead of just rushing in and like trying to create change. You want to like observe seasons, observe where the sectors are and the zones and what might grow better and, and stuff like that. What does Nevada Desert Experience do? Uh, what's the interplay between the work of NDE and mental health so Nevada Desert Experience is an interfaith peace organization based in Las Vegas doing protests and action around the Nevada test site, the Nevada National Security Site. Um, so we do currently, we have like a peace walk that goes from the Atomic Testing Museum on the Strip in Las Vegas, 63 miles walking to the Nevada test site, where we then protest the uh, continued use of the test site as a weapons laboratory where they currently do, as I understand it, every other week uh, test to see if plutonium remains as stable as it can be such that the weapon warheads work as opposed to degrading with so time. So the war machine never stops. Therefore, the maintenance of nuclear weapons systems, including their plutonium pits, allegedly degrading and needing refurbishment, will keep the nuclear weapons at a maximum level of lethality. Uh, so it's time for a little break. Laura Marie and Ming, you remind me of a song. This is Can't Cheat Karma by Zounds. And it doesn't seem to matter what you do or say. If a change is gonna happen, gotta help it on its way. A change has gotta come before too long, I know. The peace has gotta come and I could be wrong, I know. But I just don't 
I can do You don't trust me and I don't trust you I bet you wish you did and I know I do I've got an ego, I've got an ego, I've got an ego, it won't let me go, I've got an ego, it won't let me go, what am I gonna do? A, B, C, D, paranoia's killing me, I'm dying on me aching feet, what a way to go. Roll up, roll up, people always stroll up, so why don't you grab no thank But I just don't know what I can do. Yes, the conundrum of paranoia and trust. This song's called Can't Cheat Karma, claiming the inevitability of a return to peace. And today on Peril and Promise, Ming Lai and Laura Marie Victor Taylor have been talking about the connections between growing food, as they did in Sacramento, and resisting the Industrial Growth Society's answers of chemical treatments for mental health conditions. Laura Marie and Ming are part of Nevada Desert Experience, or NDE, an interfaith group which opposes nuclearism and militarism. As mentioned before, I also volunteer with the same group. Ming, what's the point of using interfaith prayer power against weapons of mass physical destruction via NDE? It gives a sense of spirituality, uh, connection, and rejuvenation to our participants who participate in our event, to see the desert in all its glory and its wonder that have been like recorded for generations, millennia even, about the spiritual nature of deserts and how in doing war making we despoil the desert, which is counter to what is in our best interest. Right. Not just human best interest, but also other animals, other life forms when it comes to radioactive poisoning. Yeah. The second part of that question is uh, how does um the kinds of work that the prayer actions that NDE does, Nevada Desert Experience, how does that um, address or or help ease some of the psychic burdens of uh, of mental health uh, challenges? Well, we are easing the burden of mental health challenges by introducing people to the desert, introducing people to the spirituality that they may actually hold and not be realizing that they hold within them. Like a lot of participants are dumbfounded by the immensity of the problem, by the spirituality of the problem, and are introduced to the ability to articulate their needs and their desires by participating in our event, by being introduced to the desert. Right. I'm going to hand the phone to Laura Marie now and see if she would like to answer the question that you posed to me. Here she is. Hello again, Laura Marie. Ming just now talked about the human capacity to understand the spiritual and physical problem of nuclear destruction. Earlier, we all talked about mental health challenges and how people suffer from distress or paranoia or fear that the world could be destroyed by nukes or that people can painfully go extinct from other causes. Ming was indicating that a Nevada Desert Experience, or NDE, event could help. So I wonder, can you tell us how such a desert excursion could be helpful for folks, Laura Marie? Sure. Uh, I, I experienced at my first Nevada Desert Experience event that uh, there was healthy community that was supporting supporting me for the first time, like uh, very kindly and authentically, despite the fact that I was having a really difficult time in my in my life right then. A lot of people were very kind to me. So, so that uh, community aspect is wonderful to uh, have the closeness with people that's 
that's real, even though it happens really fast. But uh, another really important part of it is the way it's so easy to feel like you can't do anything. The systems are so big and the money is so big and the powerful people just seem, you know, like impossible to affect. So when I experienced that I could do something, um, it was extremely heartening and, you know, I was, I, I wasn't still am trying to figure out the best ways to act. Uh, according to my values, considering my particular challenges with resources and with health and everything. But just the fact that I could do something was really important to me. A friend and maybe a relative or two would say, you know, this doesn't matter. Your protesting doesn't matter. I'm not convinced that this is going to do anything. You know, and I'd say, well, putting my body out across from the test site and into into it or at Creech, then, you know, sitting at home, it seems like at least trying is better than nothing. So even if I'm not effective, uh, I have a chance. And and if I'm doing it in community with people and we're forming connections and love and working toward eliminating the loneliness of our own life, then it's definitely worthwhile. So the, the empoweringness of it is really important to me. The fact that I'm trying something rather than nothing is important the community and you know being out in nature walking through the desert for hours a day it changed me it, it rearranged something in my soul where the desert you know I had loved it for a long time but I had never known it like that to actually move through it and and feel you know all the sensory things and you know be praying with every step praying to all the people and all the vehicles as they passed by and praying to the earth itself and the plants and all of that suffering the suffering of all the pain of the nuclear weapon destruction stuff and then the Creech Air Force stuff and then the prisons that are right there across from Creech. And then how much like suffering power could there be here? So then to bring our love energy there to try to, you know, heal what we could is, is very it's a very good feeling because it's such a beautiful, beautiful place. To try and help. And thank you for casting your body ballots into the physical spaces of violence with your votes of love, healing, and nonviolence. Laura Marie and Ming, we're out of time, so we'll have to cut the interview now. Today's guests have been volunteers with an interfaith peace and justice group that's now been holding events for 38 years. Part of the movement to abolish nuclear weapons in the USA and beyond, the group was started by Santa Barbara and Oakland Franciscans in 1981. Their events will resume in October, and their website is nevadadesertexperience.org. Or to see it on a map, trace a line due east from Fresno, California to Mercury, Nevada to find America's nuclear weapons proving ground. This has been our 22nd episode of Peril and Promise on KCBP, your community radio station in the central San Joaquin Valley. You've been listening to Peril and Promise, KCBP's half-hour show regarding environmental injustice and human recovery from health hazards in California. More information on today's show can be found at kcbpradio.org. This show is hosted by Pegasus and produced by the Peace Life Center of Modesto, Thank you for tuning in to Peril and Promise here on KCBP 95.5 FM. Our theme music of Peril and Promise is a performance by Alzara Getz of Dorothy's Melting. 